Hey, dickheads! We have a special pink laser beam of truth coming to you from across the globe and in quarantine. Uh, Evan Lampy, who is returning for his third appearance on the podcast live from China for us, not for you, for us. He's live from China. And uh, now let's get into, we're going to do the next five books in the Philip K. Dick Hoorah, starting with Martian Time Slip, which I think Evan and I both agree is one of Philip K. Dick's favorites. Your over your first general thoughts on Martian Time Slip, Evan? Oh, I, well, actually, I think this whole period is just wild. I think that 63, 64 to 66, those books he published, they're my favorite by far. So all of these I love. But, and, and they all deal with like distinct themes. They overlap a little bit, but they're all really, I was just jotting down some of the themes of these different five books. And they're all over the place, but they're all like to some of his most interesting ideas. And I, I think like Martian Time Slip is a great example of that. Now, this is maybe one of the best plotted of these five, I think, in the sense mm-hmm. that it seems a little bit more structured. But uh, I don't know like, what, what to say. It's like the Wild West on Mars, but combined with like suburban California degradation. Now, it's, it's just kind of here's an interesting up thing. all these things together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll get more into what it was actually about in a little bit, but let's mm-hmm. talk about the actual writing of it. It was written okay. in October of, of 1962, and that was right mm-hmm. after he wrote the first draft of We Can Build You and before Dr. Blood Money. So he wrote this and Dr. Blood Money back to back. The manuscript reached SMLA in 1962, um, a month after they received We Can Build You. But it was first serialized as All We Mars Men in in the World of Tomorrow. Um, It also had his original title for it. Are you ready for this, Evan? Good member. Yeah, right. I don't know. Yeah, it's Good Member Arnie Knott of Mars. That was Philip K. Dick's chosen title. Wow. Good member. A little bit. Better. But, right. But I, I like the We Are All Mars Men one too, because it you got this diverse you got these different Martians. You know, these you got the settlers, you got the indigenous people, and you got these different classes and the unions. I, I think it's Israeli like the kibbutzes and all that. I think it's just an interesting experiment and like frontier. I, yeah, I think this is one of his best frontier novels. Well yes, and I think we are all Mars Men is better than good member Arnie Knott of Mars, but I'm glad that um, uh, I think it was Berkeley who eventually published it, uh, chose the name Martian Time Slip, because that is uh, actually, I think, one of my favorite titles, too. Um, it's one that uh, has always resonated with me. I, I, lo- I love the title. And it actually has um, more to do with, well, I guess we are, you're right, We Are Mars Men does have to do with the plot, but... Uh, yeah. Anyways, it was sold to well, Ballantyne in 1963, and it was rejected by Ace. Don Wilhelm turned down Martian Time Slip, and it's because he asked for very one very specific change. And he said, Don Wilhelm said, and I quote, "It offended my science fiction sense. There couldn't have been a Mars colony in 1994 when he put it. If he had thrown it a hundred years in the future, I would have bought it." And uh, wow. for some some reason, 
uh, PKD decided that it was, it, he refused to change the year so much so that he went to another publisher. But uh, that ended up working out for him because he got uh, Valentine, I think, gave him a hardcover with this one. Um, mm-hmm. But, um, and then the last thing I'll say about the publication history, and then we'll get more into your ideas on on the book, but uh, um, Dick said a couple of times that he thought this book was more, that this was closer to his non-sci-fi, his mainstream novels, that he thought this was more of a literary work um, on the on, on par with, uh, well, wait, maybe I actually had the quote here. He said, with High Castle and Time Slip, I thought I had bridged the, gra- the gap between the experimental mainstream novel and science fiction. Suddenly, I found a way to do everything I wanted to do as a writer. I had in mind a whole series of books, a vision, a new kind of science fiction progressing, progressing from those two novels. Then Time Slip was rejected by Putnam and every other hardcover publisher we sent it to. Okay, so it wasn't a hardcover. Yeah. It was with Valentine. But then he also said... My That's interesting, because he, he wrote this right next to Dr. Blood Money, which also, I think, is trying to bridge that gap. Like a lot of domestic drama, affairs, like the kind of stuff his mainstream novels were about, right? Suburban living and, and these couples, you know, with their, their marriage problems. Clans of the Elfane Moon... Uh, does the same sort of mm. stuff. I mean, it's basically a divorce, right? Um, right. And he was uh, he was still with Anne at this point. Uh, there were two more years before I think they divorced. So, mm-hmm. um, which is one of the reasons why. <laughs> yeah, w- w- we'll uh, see the effect of that uh, when we get to cleanse the Alphane Moon for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, well, all of these are weird on relationships too, like. Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. You, could, you do a whole episode just on the, the relationships and the sexual politics of these five novels. Uh, yeah, I think we're, we were joking about calling it the, our divorcepedia because we always, whenever we're, we're not sure who he was married to or divorcing at any given time, we always say we have to check divorcepedia. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so... Um, I think it's interesting to think of that he thought this was the gap, this was the one of the bridge books, and that he saw it on the same level as as Man in the High Castle. And so, mm-hmm. and I definitely think that during this period, there were books that were of a higher quality level. Um, that uh, I think this one kind of goes with. I always think of Time Out of Joint, uh, Man in the High Castle, mm-hmm. and March of Time Slip. Uh, personally, um, I. I think I in the Sky is one of his early best, but um, I think that these ones do mark uh, a little bit more sophistication. Um, and I, I think, you know, it's funny because you and I uh, rated uh, Marsh Tinesland very highly, but the other dickheads were not as big of fans. But I, I think this book works on a, on a, on a really solid level. Um, and, and I do think that it, it, that it, um, Bridges that gap, but then he said, Dick said, my vision collapsed, I was crushed. I had made a miscalculation somewhere, and I don't know how. The evolution I had made of myself of the marketplace went poof. I reverted to a more primitive concept of my writing. The books that followed 
Martian time slip are gone. So it's interesting to think of the fact that he had this other direction plan in mind and all the other pulpy stuff he ended up writing after this. And it's interesting to kind of think about where he might have gone with that. But mm-hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. But uh, anyways, so Martian time slip, uh, you know, we have lots of issues. I- I'd say first one of the main things is the whole schizophrenia and autism thing. He was yeah. inspired by he and uh, Dorothy used to have to um, watch a friend's autistic son, and that inspired um, that aspect of the story. But what's really interesting about that is that there's kind of a uh, the the schizophrenia and autism gets kind of blurred in there. What do you think about that aspect of, of the novel, uh, Martian Time Slip? Well, I, I think well, I'm interested in all everything he has to say about any kind of mental disorder or anything. And, you know, throughout these works, and we'll get to Clans of Elfie Moon, I'm sure. Um, I, I think I, I read somewhere, or I did some research that there was like this idea that it's autism was something about time was out there in literature at the time. Hmm. And so he may have pulled it from, somewhere or he just came up with it himself but i i just i think it's a great idea to 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 build a novel around this idea right mm-hmm. well somebody who I, works, I really, yeah yeah i work with people with autism in it and i obviously think it's a little bananas um and it doesn't make any mm-hmm. like actual sense but once yeah I, it does, I, but, yeah if i allow myself to just go with what the novel is doing i enjoyed that aspect of the story and i like the idea that somebody could have a disorder that uh, that leaves them kind of slipping through time is really cool. I just it's I just can't think of it as autism, but it's like uh, well, go ahead. Well, it's something Dick likes to think about, which is different perceptions, right? So if you got like what's the novel, the one Eye in the Sky, right, where everyone kind of yeah. sees the world a little bit differently, right? And you know it's, he does that in a lot of his works, of course. So it's right. Yeah, and I think that the autism and schizophrenic vision of this story is so important to what makes Martian Time Slip such a weird, weird uh, book, but it's also what makes it makes it interesting and not like, and I think what's really key is that if you look at that, this came out in 1964, you know, this is why, you know, people like Don Wilhelm and Tony Boucher, who were buying his work, saw him, even though he wasn't a commercial author at that time at all. His books didn't sell, but they kept publishing him because he was breaking new ground and, and doing interesting mm-hmm. things. And I think this book, um, much like uh, High Castle, just uh, really does new and interesting things that the genre hadn't, hadn't seen before. Um, so let's talk about the world building uh, here. Because, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I think this is some of Dick's best world building. Um, and, agree with that. yeah, and what he's got going on here, you know, he introduces the idea on the very first page that something that he'll come back to with three stigmata is the idea that to cope with life on Mars, um, uh, drugs are being used, um, mm-hmm. to, uh, to make life in, in the colony, um, more bearable. How do you think this fits into his greater view of the frontier? And and I know okay. the frontier one of your huge issues mm-hmm. with uh, with Dick, and this has got to be one of his ultimate frontier novels. Yeah, I think there's at least two phases to his view on the frontier, and I, I think 
in his short stories he wrote in the mid 50s, early 50s, he's, I guess he's still got this kind of Promethean attitude towards the frontier. There's going to be kind of a human revival. It's, it's, it's the key to human salvation. Even some of his novels do this, like, uh, Jones, the world Jones made, right? Or, um, I think Time on a Joint, the same thing. Yeah. Where the, the, the moon, the, the lunatics are somehow the next stage of mankind. And this might be some, well, we were just talking about, uh, Van Vogt on the other podcast, right? This, right. There's this kind of Promethean idea in the air, right? And Dick was breathing that in, right? But I think this is an important novel because he starts to have this vision of this really degraded frontier that's just an extension of the old garbage from the, the center, right? It becomes a, Mars becomes a center of development, right? And you just get the same kind of ethnic communities. You get the same kind of genocidal ideals. You get the same kind of education systems. Everything's just a, a, a crude extension of, of the homeland. And it just kind of gets, becomes degraded. And I think that's all like when Manfred shifts into the future, he's basically in a, a like a, this rotten housing development, right? Years after it's, it's kind of been decayed. So he's seen the, the, the outcome of, of the developers' plans which is going to be this degraded Mars, which is the way Earth, the kind of the Earth suburbs were going in, in Dick's view, like the California suburbs. So that has it. And then I think Three Stigmata deepens this in a way with, with really focusing on the drug use and the misery and the, the, the boredom of, of life on the, on the colonies. It's a little bit more brutal. I think Martian Time Slip has, has a little bit more, there's a little bit more life there. I mean, it's not horrible. It's not as horrible as it is in Three Stigmata. So you already touched on this a little bit, but let's talk about the various different cultures that exist on Mars. Besides, we'll get to the racial stereotypes and the bleak men later, I, I think. Mm. But of the human, um, the humans that have colonized on Mars, um, like for me, one of the most interesting things was the kibbutz and yeah. that. Uh, you know, Ben Gorion was, you know, I think the airport, I think, was named after him. Uh, no, that may be actually in Israel. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, there's some really interesting political dynamics at play in the culture that the humans have on Mars. Like, give me your thoughts on that, on what's going on there. Well, I don't remember all the different communities that were, were there. I do remember the kibbutzes. I it, like the labor politics. I think that was an interesting thing. The importance of the labor unions, the, the and the repair that, shops. that that the working class seemed to have a little bit more political power on Mars, maybe just because of the realities of being on a frontier. I just remember kind of all these kind of ethnic identities endured. So the 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 frontiers don't become something new. That's one thing I was really struck by. The frontier hey, just uh, becomes an extension of the old. Um, okay. Um, so, yeah, on page 96, I, I pulled up this part. Um, uh, Mr. Yee can lease me to the to the workers' union. I'd be paid by Mr. Yee, and he'd be paid by Arnie. Everyone would be happy, and why not? Tinkering with a broken and malfunctioning mind of a child certainly has has more to, to recommend than tinkering with refrigerators and encoders. So that's an interesting thing about, like, how the unions work. Um, <laughs> uh 
the water union and uh, and how mm-hmm. labor works. In, yeah, in- people could buy and sell contracts, right? I remember that. Yeah, and, and and so I think that's you know one of the interesting things about like the whole thing that he set up here on Mars is is, is that's one of the reasons why this book has such great world building is because mm-hmm. I think so many things about how Mars functions isn't it is very interesting and very different but yeah i i, I just i mean of course the developers that's just huge here um and the land speculators the schools robotic schools i mean that is great stuff i loved that part of this mm-hmm. the the whole robot teachers this is the one where you have like mark twain teaching literature and <laughs> cicero teaching political science or whatever that's a, that's a, that's this one right yeah i'm pretty sure it is like, yeah, yeah. The historical figures or or the literary figures are teaching their respective fields to people. Right. Yeah, and and then there were some. Uh, then, go ahead. Oh, what else here? Um, well, I think I mean, the, like, <laughs> yeah, the sorry. genocidal aspect of this novel too. I I think it's part of the. I guess it's part of the world building. I mean, both the Bleakman. That's maybe the most obvious, but. From Earth too, like they're going to genocide all, all of anyone with mental issues, mental health issues, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and the Bleakman. Okay, I guess we can get into that. There's all kinds of weird racial stereotypes mm-hmm. in this book, um, and uh, yeah, you know, uh, from how how uh, you know on uh, page eleven, there's a line that says um, one of the characters says, "Let's see if those rich Jews up in New Israel have a steam bath that wastes water." And, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, and then we set up, uh, operations here before the UN was anything, but here, but here, anything here, but a flag painted in the sand. We had houses built before they had a pot to piss in anywhere on Mars, including all that disrupted area in the South between the U.S. and France. So I thought that's an interesting thing about how they're talking about how, you know, they named some of the mountains after Stalin and there's all kinds of interesting things about, you know, um, about how the land works there. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, but the Bleakman, you know, it's this, this interesting thing where the Bleakman set up the situation where we're, where Dick is able to comment on colonialism um, yeah, and racism yeah. here. And that's certainly like on page, as early as page 13, he uses the N word to, you know, like the people yeah. on Mars definitely use that word when they're talking about the Blinkman. And they're seen as just kind of like this, this kind of population that is just too bad they're here. Like they showed mm-hmm. up to Mars and it doesn't matter that they're indigenous or whatever. Well, I, I do think this is. The, the story of the West, in a way, of, of what U.S. empire in the West, because you got this eradication of the indigenous population, the theft of their land, and then what follows that up is certainly a very diverse population of, of different white people, which is what you got here, and, and capital following them up, right? Whether it's the big ranchers or the big mines, here it's the developer, I mean, the, the, the real estate developer. Is the um, like something about the developers I, I wanted to say and I thought about was this happens both in Martian Time Slip and Three Stigmata, 
where you have this, these people with these amazing powers and abilities. In the Three Stigmata, it's precogs. Here, it's, it's uh, Manfred's ability to essentially experience uh, different points in time. And they both get used for very boring kind of short-term capital improvements, you know, for, for cap, the purpose of capital, right? People can see the future. What do you use it for? You use it to, to uh, predict the next fashion, right? That's, it's so mundane, right? And I think it's such a contrast to the way mutant powers are seen in like the Campbell, Joseph Campbell stuff, right? Yeah. In the 1850s, all this human fetishizing. Even Dick got into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Well, one last thing I want to say about uh, March Time Slip and, and 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 Mars in this context, um, I mean, we can talk, we can expand on this. Is uh, a friend of the podcast, James Reich, who uh, recently last year wrote a novel called "The Song My Enemies Sing," and one of the things he wanted to do was set that book in this kind of fictional Mars and just go ahead and you know let fly like all the the inaccuracies that. 50s and 60s sci-fi writers were writing about Mars. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about Martian time slip and where I, now that I think about it, this might be why he, Dick, wanted to stick to his guns with Wolheim on this is because we laughed and said, yeah, Wolheim was right. There's no way there'd be a Mars colony in 94. But I don't think Dick cares. I think his version of Mars here is so ridiculous and so experimental it, it can't exist in our universe and i almost think that he's wanting this version of mars to be this completely surreal place that that uh could, that doesn't really exist in our universe what do you think about that idea well I was, ever since you mentioned this that he held out on the date i was thinking why is that and you know because i think often like dates don't it's, this is true in all his works, right? The date really doesn't matter that much, except maybe in like time on a joint where you're dealing with someone who had to have lived a certain time period to experience the 50s, right? Usually it doesn't matter. It's just kind of random. It's A lot of them are in the 90s. He puts a lot of things. But that's close enough, I guess, to people's lives, to their experiences, so they can draw those connections to things that are happening around them and the, the, this, this world he's painting. But I like this idea you're playing with that it's almost like you put it close enough so it almost does become a bizarre world. You know, might as well right. just be an alternate reality. It allows them to be a little bit freer. Yeah, and I, 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 I guess really that in the in the vast future, it's in the distant future, it, it is more real, believable, I guess. Right, and this isn't something we talked about on our episode about time slip. It's just something that I that kind of occurred to me now because. You know, when, when, when you look at, like, the idea that there would be, like, this Israeli settlement and the, these other things, it's like he's putting real politics in there. But at the mm-hmm. same time, he's, you know, this concept of, of how time moves and, and, and the fact that there's still canals there. It's like, I think by that time, it would be ridiculous. I think even the science proved that no, that there was no way that there could be bleak men on Mars, that there could be life on Mars. And he had to have known that. And and I think mm-hmm. at this point, you know, it's different from like when Edgar Rice Burroughs is writing John Carter of Mars, they really didn't know, you know, or when Wells wrote War of the Worlds. But this, at this point, 1962, he definitely knew that, that life mm-hmm. wasn't on Mars. So, 
you know, I'm, I'm going to have to rethink what I said before about what Mars means in, I don't know if it, it's the same in Three Stigmata, but I think in this one, he's definitely looking for more of a surreal landscape in, in Martian time slip. So yeah, that almost changes I, my I, whole It's hard for me not to see here him just trying to tell the story of, of California. I do think oh, more so yeah. than in Three Stigmata. It, this is the story of California where you got this this frontier that gets colonized and gets turned into just like bland, you know, cookie cutter homes, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, you got that diverse, was- diversity of people. Uh, and he's actually in a, even the labor issues are interesting because in the, in the 60s, you could make a case that labor was overpowered in the 60s. I mean, that was one reason they had that conservative reaction in the 80s, like, oh, labor, you know, it's a little bit too powerful. So we, so the Reagan argument, right? We got to suppress labor. You know, it was the high point of union power in the U.S. So there's a lot here that seems to be drawn from life, except for the robotic schools. I think there's the robot teachers. Yeah. I love that idea. Even as a teacher, I, I love the idea that a robot will take my job someday and do better at it. So I think even the case is made in that section of the book that robot teachers will do a better job teaching kids, uh, especially kids with handicaps. Um, no, I, I think that's funny, too. And somebody who teaches kids with disabilities and kind of feels like a robotic teacher doing it over Zoom now, um, <laughs> that, that there is something to that. Um, that is one of the uh, funniest or interesting moments. I would say that Martian Time Slip is not as comical as some of the other books, although there's definitely still a few uh, laugh out loud um, parts to this book, but, uh, I, there, there's, well, there's the suicide that's in the very early pages of the novel, Norbert Steiner's suicide. You have the, the, the stuff at the end, uh, which is kind of quite nice. It's kind of quite touching. So I think this one is played a little bit straighter, but I, I think the, but not the affair. I mean, the, the, the traveling salesman seducing the, the wives. That's, that's hilarious. That's and another cliche. You talk about ethnic cliches in this novel, but the cliche of the traveling salesperson seducing the wives. <laughs> right. Well, um, so when we, and this episode still hasn't come out yet, uh, and it will soon, mm-hmm. hopefully, but when we voted on our favorite no- um, novels, or ranked our novels for the first 10 years, you had Martian Time Slip as number two. Um, so, and the highest... Uh, you had Martian Times ranked the highest of, of of our panel of dickhead experts. So mm-hmm. I know that you are uh, quite a fan of this book. And the book ended up higher on the list be- just because of you and I had it very high and uh, Brian Evanson had it very high. So the three of us wow. uh, put Martian Times Lip up high. And I will say that I, I think that thinking about it as a surreal novel does add more to it. And when you listen to those quotes from Deck that he saw it as something bridging the gap between his mainstream novels and that he saw it on a higher level, I think that might be what he was looking for. Um, yeah. Well, the, the, uh, in terms of surrealism, the last third is kind of glorious, right? With the, when you experience these scenes again and again in a little bit different ways and they get increasingly bizarre. Um, there's even the one with the teacher kind of transforms, like the robot teacher transforms into something else. Uh, that's just great stuff. That's really wonderful. It, it yeah. kind of was like three stigmata in that way. 
and people to do that same kind of totally take you out of realism. Right. All right. Any final thoughts? Oh, right. on time slip final thoughts. I put this as number one on the list. I don't even. No, you put it as number two. I, think. I mean, a, a two. Yeah, I believe I put it up high. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I love this. I, I think it's just a great novel about the California frontier. I think um, kind of the use of these abilities for mundane purposes, I think, is is great. you got the brutality of the technocracy, whether it's the developers and their attitude towards the bleakmen and the unions on Mars, or just the, the whole attitude of Earth that, you know, we just need to genocide whoever you know, is abnormal for the purity of the race. you got this kind of quasi-fascist um, conversation, which he does in a lot of books at this time. Everything, you know, obviously Man in High Castle, but the Simulacra too. So there's a lot in here, but I think it's one of the best plotted and coherent of the novels from this period. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. Um, um, next is the penultimate truth. Um, so uh, as opposed to the final truth, we got the penultimate truth. Um, the penultimate truth yep. was was um, written in March to May 1964. The final draft. It was published in September of that year, so very quick turnaround. And it was this draft of Penultimate Truth was written right after Three Stigmata and written congruently with The Zap Gun, which we're doing next on the podcast as of this recording. And right before the the Unteleported Man, which we just finished recording our episode on Lising slash Unteleported Man. And uh so he had to write an outline for Penultimate Truth and send it to um, Ace in 1964. So he had, he knew he was going to fix up three short or two short stories. I know we're going to talk about the third one that influences it too. But um, you know the idea was that he was going to take two stories originally, the Defenders of Moldavian City, and combine them. That's what he told Ace, and so they wanted. Um, a outline from him. So he actually had to write a conceptual outline, which I don't know of him doing any other time. Um, and the, the two short stories that he spliced together were, um, the defenders and Mulder Yancey and defenders was originally published in the 1953 issue of galaxy. Mm -hmm. And, um, 1955 is when the appearance of the mold of Yancey happened. And there's also a third short story which um, influenced at least one scene of the novel, and that story is help me out here. The unreconstructed M. The reconstructed M. Unreconstructed correct. M. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that's a that's a wonderful story. Yes, and um, I only knew about it because of your episode, and um, I think you. Uh, and all the stuff I've seen written about Penultimate Truth, the, your podcast was the only one to get that one credit. What I wanted to so, say about these three stories is, like, he uses these three stories, but thematically, the Penultimate Truth is so different from these three stories. Absolutely. Like, it's it uses, I, like, structure from the Defenders and ideas from the Defenders, but it has none of the same conclusions or ideas as the Defenders. Right? And it's the same with the Mold of Yancey. So the Moldy Yancey, it's about people having their political opinions swayed by this banal 
folksy uh, political caricature, right? Like the Eisenhower, I guess, was the model for the mold of Yancey. And that shifts the population's politi politics to this banal, I guess, I don't know, centrism or something, kind of towards authoritarianism. Um, but, and you have Yance men here, you have the words, you have this idea of a political elite, but none of the same concepts really at work here. It's much more brutal here. Same thing with the defenders. The reality is actually so much worse, more worse in the penultimate truth than in the defenders. But the defenders on its own is a really uh, strong story. And mm -hmm. you know, when I was thinking about Phil K. Dick's Electric Dreams that was adap adapting a lot of the short stories from that era, I thought that would make an incredible episode of that show. And as a standalone story, the defenders is actually, I mm -hmm. think, one of his better short stories from that era. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a, it's, it's a great idea, and it's done really well here. But I actually think, in the penultimate truth, it's almost better if it's done by the people, not by the robots. Mm -hmm. Because in the penultimate truth, the robots aren't in control. They're just slaves. They're just serfs. Um, you being used by these Yancemen, who, I guess it's they never fully went underground, right? Or were they, some of them were people that left early. But anyway, well, and then they just, well, they're, they're, yeah. We'll get into the penultimate truth yeah. plot in a little bit, but I do have a quote from Dick um, directly talking about um, these short stories. He said, obviously, Yancey is based on President Eisenhower. During his mm -hmm. reign, we were all worrying about the man in the gray flannel suit pro problem. We feared that the entire country was turning into one person and a whole lot of clones. Although in these days, the word clone was unknown. I liked this story, Mold of Yancey, enough to use it as a basis for my novel, The Penultimate Truth. In particular, in particular, the part where everything the government tells you is a lie. I still like that part. I mean, I still believe it's so. Watergate, Watergate of course, for the basic idea of the story out. So, that's, that's his notes to the Mold of Yancey, right? Yes. Yep. And yeah. he also said, um, he also blamed the penultimate truth for the reason why the FBI knocked on his door, <laughs> which is interesting. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. asked about the FBI on his door. He said, I don't know. Early in the 60s, I did write a novel about a phony war between the United States and Russia that's carried out for the sole purpose of keeping citizens of those countries underground while the leaders lived in palatial splendor above ground. In the novel, some Americans and some Russians are able to get above ground and find out what's really going on, and they become friends. Um, which is interesting. I, I like how he describes the novel there. Um, and uh, and here's one of the things. I, um, Penultimate Truth is not one of my favorite executions of, of, of Dick concept, but it is one of my favorite concepts. And it's one that I would love to see adapted in the film. Um, yeah, I think done. so. I, I think I think you're right. I, it's it's um, yeah, it's such a great idea. I mean, I guess it would be you could criticize it that you know this idea of a false reality has been done so much in Hollywood, but it's you know Dick was there first. You know, yeah, he definitely ideas. was there first. Well, it's funny too because it's the same thing with Time Out of Joint and um, what's the Jim Carrey movie with the, oh, the Truman Show? Yeah, Truman Show. Yeah. I mean, it's so obvious that, that that's such a Philip K. Dick concept and, and that he really did do it in a way more out there in science fiction way with um, with uh, Time on a Joint. But, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, the penultimate truth has been um, 
is a lot has been taken from it. But I think both the defenders on its own and penultimate truth both make excellent adaptations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I like how they get to different places because the defenders, yeah. So the defenders, you get to. There's a good reason for what the robots are doing, you know. And you could argue, you know, whatever the morality of it. But there seems to be a a benevolence at the end, like a benevolent goal of reclaiming the earth and and creating a new man that's beyond war. In the penultimate truth, it's all just to to create a feudal feudal barons, essentially. That's what they become, right? They have their serfs, these these robots that are being made by the people below. It's got it's this brutal class structure. Uh, I mean, even the urban planning of it. I actually wrote a little essay for a Philip Dick fan magazine about urban planning and the penultimate truth. That you have like the gated communities and the slums and the, like the working class underground. There's like an urban geography in this book that's fairly well articulated. I think. Speaking of, it's not so much world building as much of much as really there's an urban geography that's quite alive here. And I think some of the just. Some of the descriptions of the of the surface and the whole the the way that they what the the way the lie is constructed is some of, is, is really some of the best writing in the book. Um, mm-hmm. I like on uh, the description of the buildings, the Ozymandian structures. I mean, they're not even feudal lords, or beyond that, at some in some point, almost like emperors. Yeah, and, and like okay, on page twelve, I love this writing right here. Mm-hmm. Um, Yep, he nodded. It was so. Two weeks. Death by destruction of the red blood cell making capacity of the bone marrow. One week. The bag plague or the stink or shrink of the raw claw paw. And he already felt germophobic. Already, a few minutes ago, he had quaked from the trauma of it. It's great. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he, this book, um, to me, it, Seems on the surface because it's a fix-up novel, it's really easy to mm-hmm. to kind of just push it aside as another one of his pulpy fix-up books. But I think that the, I think um, it's uh, it's in the top five of political novels for for um, yeah for Dick. Um, I can see. Yeah, because I think we I think when we in our episode about it we discussed that it probably is the most political of his early of his first 15 years or first 10 years and even more so than man in the high castle like uh that was one of the things that i think at one point anthony tried to argue with me that man in the high castle was more political and um i would say that penultimate yeah. truth is de- definitely the most political i mean they're all political. yeah it's it's i don't know if i'd go to say it's the most political but it's it's one of the most politicals Political. And it has a nice overlap with Martian Time Slip, even though they seem to have been written a couple years apart, uh, about, again, developers. I, I think, you know, you do have this urban geography with the slums, the gated communities, the people underground, very separate classes, right? Because you got the elite, the Yansmen living in Ozymandian structures, palaces, pyramids, whatever. Then you have these populations of people who left the underground living in kind of like these ghettos. Right, often in hot spots. I remember they were, they were often put in places that are still radioactive, and then you have the working class all shoved underground. But then you have this this whole time travel plot on top of it, which is all also about development. It's it's in, just like in Martian time slip, time travel being used to to promote a real estate scheme. 
Yeah, we didn't like that storyline. I think that was the thing we all agreed on is that we all thought that was kind of random. Well, no, it was the uh, well, it, the time travel, but the alien it's, part of the storyline, the uh, alien artifact and the the rights to the land and the, the yeah. Cherokee, right? Yeah, the Cherokee it time travel. Really it does seem not to fit into the rest of the story, but it's on its own. It's great stuff. It's. You know, and it, I, I agree. It's kind of crammed in, but I love unreconstructed M so much too that the that method of assassination is so clever, especially when oh, we love data. The killer TV. Yeah, the killer yeah. TV is great. Uh, and and, the and then the, I, I I forget if it's in the novel or the short story, but how they collect data and they use big data to catch the criminal, and then how that can that whole system can be used to frame someone. It's great. I think it's in both. Um, yeah. I, I like a lot of the action with the Lettys, and um, I think the way that the warlords control them is is some of the interesting and funny parts. Um, mm-hmm. I do actually, since we're talking about the killer TV, I do have that page number written down where it happens. So maybe we can get to the bottom of. Uh, uh, let's see. If, uh, if there's anything about the collection of data, but. Uh, a portable television set is not an instrument by which human death can be. Uh, do you want to take over the job foot set of finding your Lord Slayer? <laughs> or will you leave mm-hmm. it to me? <laughs> and then later on, on the, the end of the chapter, he says, a precog hunch. It's going to take days or even weeks to get at what works within this TV set. <laughs> so I do think it was, um, well, carrying, uh, and then he says, here in, here in his hands, he had the death instrument, but a hell of a lot of good it was going to do him. So I do think it was collecting data on him. I think that's what it's trying to say in that scene. But I, I think, like, I don't think there was that much in the story, like, ex- expanding the defenders a little bit. It's still, he, he had to add this whole Lantano plot with the time traveler and the alien device. and the, You know, I, I'm, I'm, I like this in part because of that great scene where the bulldozing, the, the land gets bulldozed. I, I just think it's so, I, I got, I, I think, I wonder if Dick just drove by a, like a, a site being cleared for development and thought <laughs> of this, you know, like right. somewhere in California, Ronnie saw that and he thought this would be a great scene to put in some kind of future novel um, mm-hmm. that he, you know, a novel set in the future. So I love that. Um, but yeah, I just think there's not that it's, it's, it's a good political novel, but, once the point's made, he had to kind of stretch it out into a story. So you end up with these cobbled together stuff with the uh, um, with with Lantano and his old plot to bring down the ants men and and all that. So. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it, again, I don't know why he keeps um, having Cheyenne being like this refuge uh, or this place yeah. where the government goes after the end of the world, but. For some reason, Cheyenne is. Um, and then he says... I guess that's where he thinks the bunkers are or something after after the war. Yeah, the Cheyenne hotspot cooled down enough in 10 years, 15 years, and then someone grabbed it ahead of me, Lantano said. So it's, it's kind of funny that he was like, oh, damn, I didn't I, I didn't buy that Cheyenne property when I had the chance. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, the penultimate truth, um, I think it's it's good. It's um, 
It's an interesting back-to-back with the simulacra that he did both of those in one year because they have some similar themes. But before we get to the simulacra, let's just uh, kind of wrap up our thoughts on uh, the penultimate truth. I, I, um, I think uh, for a fix-up novel, uh, if you never knew that it was a fix-up novel, you might be like, where the hell is all these weird... I mean, we just... For for the listeners, um, we were, Evan and I were both just on a podcast. We just recorded a podcast for um, the SFF Audio podcast about the the um, uh, the world of Null A, which uh, was written by Amy yeah. Don Vogt. And um, Vogt was uh, Dick's biggest influence growing up. He's been reading him. He was reading him when he was 15 years old, particularly that novel. Uh, which he heavily um, riffed off of to make Solar Lottery. But one of the things we learned by reading The World of L.A. was that Von Vogt, if you think convoluted, out-of-nowhere, weird plots happen in PKD novels, uh, Von Vogt was a thousand times worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you read a novel like The Penultimate Truth, it may seem like it's really all over the place, but it's really... Um, very well plotted compared to Von Vogt. <laughs> um, yeah, all so, these things come together and in the story. Yeah, they do come together in here, but um, I think better than some novels. But, uh, but well, they, we can they, talk about the simulacrum. Yeah, that's that's a glorious yeah, mess. That is a glorious mess. And what a segue, Evan. Whoa. <laughs> so, uh, any last story? <laughs> any last thoughts? I don't, on the I, to ruin the segue. It's always been close to my heart just because it deals with urban issues. It's got an urban geography I love. It's dealing with development. And I think one of the key issues in our time is, is democracy in cities and, you know, how we kind of develop the right to the city. And I don't, Dick doesn't talk in those terms. He's not overtly politicizing the city the way he is politicizing truth in the media here, but it's there. And I, and I, I'm glad he's there. I think there's a lot more that could be written and said about Dick's like urban geography. And I think this is a key novel in that mission. Yeah. And so penultimate truth has a special place in my heart too, because it's post-apocalyptic ish, um, Mm -hmm. sort of in the lie it is anyways. Um, and, uh, so, and I think the defenders is one of my favorite, um, short stories. From that era. Oh, one more thing about this. Have you guys read The Shock Doctrine by Naomi Klein? Um, I've read articles from it, but I've never read the whole yeah. book. Yeah. yeah the really idea there is basically during a disaster, an earthquake, a hurricane, a coup d'etat, capital usually uses these to come into places where, you know, to, to push neoliberalism, essentially. So capital is able to take advantage of crises. I mean, that is a, kind of what's happening in the penultimate truth, too, right? You have this war. And then it just becomes, after you know, an excuse to accumulate wealth in the form of these letties. Yeah, in our episode of the penultimate truth, I said I compared this to Chomsky in saying that it's like manufacturing consent with with robots. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, simulacra. That's next. Yeah. So the simulacra was written. Yeah, let's go to the Simulacra. Um, Simulacra was written in March to August 1963, which is pretty uh, long time for Dick. Uh, that's, that's a long writing process. 
Um, and it was written after Game Players of Titan and before Now Wait for Last Year. So um, it was published in 1964, and it cost 40 cents to buy. <laughs> um, and for 40 cents, you got 56 named characters. Um, so, um, for us, that was one of the things about the book was just like, I think there's like more plots than chapters in this book. <laughs> yeah. Um, the Simulacra is definitely not one of my favorites. Let's just say that up, up front. Um, uh, I enjoy our episode about it because we had Cody Goodfellow in the studio with us and he always makes things funny. But, um, it was written in the summer of 1963 and his title was, again, terrible. Um, the First Lady of Earth was his title. Um, Simulacra is a better title. Thank you, Don Wilhelm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is an expansion of the novelette Novelly Act, which, um, PKD had written in March 63, so he went immediately from selling the short story into expanding the concept. Uh, usually these fix-ups are 10 years later, but this was like back-to-back. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, let's see, in October, or in August and October, Dick had corresponded with Terry Carr, who was an editor at Ace, and on three occasions in those letters... Um, are all about the simulacra and it was funny because one of the things that we the amuses about it is that he basically said he didn't remember what it was about after a couple months like he was just like i don't even remember <laughs> well going on well and then he, i think it's hard to actually say what this book's about yeah and he said even because he's like okay it's an extension of novelty act but mm-hmm. there's not that like that plot of People performing to get invited to perform for the first lady and this kind of this role of pop culture. It's part of the novel, but it's a pretty small part. Yeah. And so it's weird um, because he didn't like it at the time, but then years later he went on to say, I like the Simulacra. It's a very fine book in some ways. It's incredibly complex and an incredible, has an incredible number of characters. No shit. Um, <laughs> Well, and, uh, let's see. Yeah, I think he does talk a lot. I, we do have a lot of notes about the things he said about, about it. Um, and at the Mets conference in France, he commented on it, uh, during his lecture. He said, and in a sense, I'm learning about the novel, not from English prose models, but from French prose novel, novels. So it makes sense, perhaps, that my writings would be well received in France. A novel of mine, such as the Simulacra, for example, which contains 15 or 16 major characters, is definitely derived from French writers like, uh, is it Balzac? Or, it's not Balzac, is it? They're, I don't know. It is Balzac? Okay. Balzac? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, He's I famous though, right? He mm-hmm. actually speaks French, so... Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so that's, that's the background that we have, um, on the writing and publication history of the Simulacra. Um, general, first general opening thoughts, Evan, on the Simulacra. Okay. So if you were to, to take a, like, try to write down the plots, I, I just did that, write down the themes and the plots of this novel. 
So class structured society, the bees and the geese. So we got like a genetic kind of uh, division of society. Dick does this a lot, but um, you got that. You got the the whole political structure. Nicole, the actor, being the center of political power. Her the rotating husband being the one who was elected. Right. That's really interesting and kind of cool and very cynical view of, of politics. But I rather like it. Plus, you got this serial monogamy theme, which he played with in uh, Game Players of Titan and many other of his novels. He's got this uh, really wonderful sexual politics we can talk about. We got neo-fascism here, and we got a neo-fascist coup. Uh, we have time travel related to this neo-fascist coup. Um, we have a psychic piano player. He's we my have, favorite. Uh, <laughs> we have mental illness and psychiatrists being banned. Uh, we have Martian colonization or uh, with Looney Lukes. We have ne- Neanderthal survivals that come to repopulate parts of the world. We have the role of popular <laughs> culture for, yeah, get your jalopy. We got popular culture being a tool of political control through the whole performing for Nicole. Uh, we have a technocracy. I guess that's the bees and the geese thing again. Um, wow. I mean, there's more plots than there are like chapters in this book. <laughs> yeah, um, my two favorite, and I kind of love it. It's just, it's just, it's just wonderful. What a mess it is. I, I don't think it's one of his great novels. I just think there's so much going on. You, if you, and it's none of very little of this is based on other short stories. It'd be more explicable if he had written all these ideas in other short stories and merged them together. But he didn't. Most of these show up for the first time here. Well, I guess Kraken Space has Neanderthals. You got the Jalopies and other works too, but basically it's it's all just here. It's not he's not borrowing clearly from other short stories except novelty act. Well, it's funny because some of his like with Three Stigmata because it's so weird. I think people just generally assume that he was blitzed when he wrote that, and that he was just mm-hmm. like kind of out of his mind, like spinning like a thousand plates. But the simulacra is the book where I think he was completely blessed writing this thing. Yeah. Because just, I mean, the jug band alone, which is... Oh, yeah. <laughs> jug band that goes to the con app, like... Yeah, just um, getting the old band back together and they were playing jugs. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the telekinetic musician, the jalopy salesman, the... Um, the the living the Ganymede living recorders the uh, the way that the traffic works um, the time travel the paranoia like um, and there's well this has all the advertising too right yes where like the psychic advertising or something they were using psychic the, advertising we talked about that in our episode that it was like yeah. the way the psychic advertising worked is that the way we describe or Cody described it is it's like if you saw he walked by a box of cocoa pebbles, and then suddenly, mm-hmm. the psychic message makes you not only think that you want to eat cocoa pebbles, but that cocoa pebbles are literally chasing you. <laughs> you know, yeah. And so these psychic, like, um, these psychic messages and, and um, advertisements are literally hounding you at a psychic level is one of the best things in this novel. Um, well, and that's the thing is, I think, I think he kind of, pine- did he pioneer the Google ad? I mean, was there anyone before him who 
basically predicted the Google ad or the the Facebook ads, I the targeted ads. Because there's a story back in the '50s he wrote that what's it called? Um, sales pitch, I think it is, where he's getting the constant ads on his commute home from work, you know, and it's kind of like, oh, like is your wife unsatisfied in bed? Didn't and or are you experiencing too much flatulence? You know, they, they're clearly Google ads or the you know Facebook ads. You know, yeah, tracking your internet history to craft the ad particularly for you. Yeah, and that's the thing is, I think Simulacra has all kinds of amazing little interesting details, but as a novel, me personally, it doesn't work. Um, oh, it doesn't. It, it, it's it's a mess. I, how much did I yeah. say about this one? Uh, Five well, episodes. We don't, have to go too, we don't have to go too far. I mean, there might be Simulacra heads out there who are going to be like. Man, they shortchanged the simulacra. I wanted, I wanted fifteen minutes on the jet band. But uh, if they want, well, that I have over an hour on it on my podcast, so you can listen to all I have to say. I I appreciate yeah, this too. novel just for its craziness. Yeah, I can um, appreciate that. And a lot of these, like when I'm in it and I'm I'm trying to break down the novel and I'm thinking so much about it. It's one thing, but then looking back, when I'm looking at my notes, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that was hilarious. Oh, yeah, that was really yeah. funny. And I think with the Civil Apra, um the humor in it, this is the one that, like, if you were to uh, adapt this into another medium, you would want a comedy director, I think, or somebody who does, like, really weird, surreal stuff, like a Terry Gilliam type. Uh, to do this kind of story, but um, because that's kind of the tone that I get when I think of the simulacra. But I, uh, I would like to see this sort of adapted and <laughs> pretty much page, a page for page adaptation. But I mean, I w- if I was a, if I was a billionaire, I would put my money behind like a Clams of the Elfin Moon, totally politically Ooh. incorrect. Genius <laughs> adaptation of Clams of the Elfin Moon. Wow! So the Clams of the Elfin Moon was the next Philip K. Dick book. Um, and The Clans of the Alphane Moon was written in December 1963 to January 1964. So he wrote this one lightning fast, right mm-hmm. after Zap Gun and before Kraken Space. Um, and Clans of the Alphane Moon is one of the rare ones where uh, we actually end up with Philip K. Dick's title, chosen title. Um... And I think he had a short story called Shell Game that had some of the elements of it. But uh Shell Game, the, which one was that? I don't know. It's just I had notes I had a note to myself to look up the story Shell Game, but um I never did. So I once I see the plot I'll remember it. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'll look it up. Uh, but Clans of the Alphane Moon was uh, actually completed. Oh, I remember Shell Game. Shell Game's the one where you have the two, the soldiers who think they're under siege or something. Okay, I don't know what they, that they, is. They, they think they're being attacked by aliens, but they're actually just mental patients. Uh, okay. A group uh, of paranoid mental patients long stranded on an alien planet, trans, you know, believe themselves under attack by aliens or Terrans. But they're actually just nuts. They're just just crazy people. Um, so but yeah, so that idea of the paranoids carries over. Yeah. 
So uh, Phil K. Dix said, and I quote, I love Clans of the Alphane Moon because the entire thing works up to this one funny scene where they call off the attack on the rocket ship and the robot hasn't been told and he goes down and hammers on the door. And then the interviewer says, I really love that book too for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the scene near the end where the relations among all the characters get so complex that the main character has to just sit down for three pages and try to untangle who's on whose side. And he finally realizes that it's an impossible equation to solve. And then Dick says, that's a funny book in many ways. Um, and so, yeah, that was a, uh, well, it's one of my favorite. Yeah. You know, it's a friend of the show and serious dickhead, uh, Cody Goodfellow. It's uh plans of the Alphane moon is his second favorite. Um, Dick book after uh, three stigmata. And, um, I know he was a really big fan of it. Um, and I know there was a controversy. Yeah, it's okay. So for some reason, um, Barry Maltzberg's, uh, afterward really, uh, pissed people off. And like, I know a lot of fans were really upset that, uh, for some reason they thought Maltzberg didn't understand anything about Dick's life, because I think Maltzberg was commenting on Dick's personal uh, battles with mental health as it related to um, mm-hmm. the writing of this book. Although, if we go into more detail on that in our episode about Clans of the Elfane Moon, but um, I'm not, I don't remember the details with that quite as, quite as much. But for me, um, I don't like Clans of the Elfane Moon as much as uh, you do and Cody and 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 Anthony and all the people in our circle, because for me personally, I think clans is an amazing idea. And I like the idea. And I know it's totally politically incorrect. The depiction of mental health. That's not my problem with it. It's a book of its time. Um, my problem with the book is that I think it's focuses on the rain on the wrong main character. I think the, instead of the, the husband going through the divorce, Chuck Rittersdorf, I think it should be Doctor, his wife, Dr. Rearsdorf, should be the main character because I think that makes more sense for us to see the, the society on the Alphane moon from her perspective would make more sense to me. But yeah, I, I, I could see the argument, especially because she has a more of an arc as a character, kind of this realization that she's like in the clan. She's, she should be in one of the clans, you know, more so than Chuck. Like Chuck ends up in the normals, right, or the mm. tribe, you know, so which he is, doesn't have that. Yeah, and then you get into this is where you, the book where you first start to see, uh, you know, Anne being depicted uh, in their mm. divorce <laughs> uh, in the novel, and boy, yeah. uh, I hope she was she was reading his work, <laughs> and that's one of the reasons mm. why I think their marriage ended because. She was starting to see how she was depicted in these books. And uh, the um, this is the first of the kind of series of books where um, the, the wives are just, um, you know, basically painted with horns on throughout, you know, like throughout. Mm-hmm. These well, I just I just I just I'm so interested in anything he has to say about family and relationships and sex. So it's. Um... Yeah. I don't mind that stuff so much, but I see, I mean, that's why I think I would like an adaptation of Clemson's Elephant Moon, but it would have to be totally politically incorrect, so it can never be made. Yeah. 
Well, I actually talked a lot about how I would adapt Clans of the Alphane Moon on our episode, and I just, the main thing I would do is switch the characters, but, and then mm-hmm. Larry got really mad at me because he said that's not even the same book, and I understand that, but I said I would, if I adapted it, it wouldn't be totally faithful, but I would stick with the other stuff because I think it is a really bananas idea, and one of the things I like about Clans of the Alphane Moon is just how fucking crazy it is. It's, you know, when we start to talk about, like, you know, Philip K. Dick is a weird writer. This is a really great example of a just totally bizarro idea. I want to say something about mental illness. Uh, sure, go. About, like, I actually did some research on this when I wrote about Philip Dick. Is the discourse on mental illness in the 60s. Some of the big heads were really pushing, like, social explanations for mental illness. Right? So I, I guess I forgot which book I saw this in, but the idea was, you know, people, they saw this, people witnessed this, you know, people went to World War II normal and they came out, like, I guess the word at the time was shell-shocked, right? Essentially having PTSD, right? So they passed their psych check and then something happened to them in the war, right? And psychologists who started looking at these started coming to the realization that there are social, cultural contexts to mental illness, Right. And so the most extreme position in this was, uh, his name was Thomas Sands, something like that. And he said mental illness is essentially a myth. It's all socially constructed. And you have, of course, Irving Goffman with asylums, his book, which really criticized the asylum as an institution and on and on. So this is in the air at the time, mental illness being sort of a, a social disorder or that we're all, if, if we're all basically essentially mentally ill because we live in a sick society. And that's why I find so interesting about clans of the Elfane moon is you have a functioning society. It's just, they're being honest about that. They're all crazy. Sorry. The dog is behind me. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, I don't know if you can hear that. Can you hear that Larry? Nope. No. I... Okay, good. Good. All right. So, yeah, anyway, that's my, my rant about mental illness in, in this book. I think this is really of its time in this social analysis of mental illness. Right? Well, this idea that essentially we're all mentally ill. Yeah, there's some really hilariously great science fiction in here with like Ganymedian slime. I mean, like Lord Running. Oh, that's is hilarious. Um, and all or even the, that woman who can go back in time like two minutes to save lives. She's on call at the police department. <laughs> right. Yeah. Th- so I like all the weird stuff in this book. And I definitely think this is an era where he's just letting it fly with, with the weird gonzo stuff. And I definitely mm-hmm. appreciate that. And I'm not going to relitigate Larry and I's argument about Clans of the Alphane Moon because he and I got into it pretty intensely in our episode. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, I definitely, for me, it was just the structure. I didn't, I, I just thought the this novel had the wrong main first character. And, uh, but I like the concept and I think it's, it's a weird and funny one. And it has, it's a good twist if you don't read what the book's about before you start reading it. Um, when you realize what's happening in the chapter or two in, it's, it's a really cool reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I like Clans of the Alphane Moon. I think I know why he picked me to talk the main character though, because he just wants to focus on this, the piling on the misery of this character during this divorce. 
Yeah, that's, I, that's really the story he wants to tell. Is just how miserable Mary, how horrible Mary is to him, and how she just piles everything on, right? <laughs> right. Making him get a job, right? That like you need a job to pay for my, you know, like life, even though I have a job, and, and then you know he's got living in this horrible apartment with slime mold. And it's, it's kind of beautiful. Yeah, um, I do think it's one of the weirder, more interesting ones that he's got there. I do like. Um, you know, that a lot of the book is kind of a setup and I do think that he did kind of plan it all along and I think that's good. And I don't have a ton to say about Clans of the Alphane Moon. I don't think, I think that the mental illness stuff is definitely of its time and interesting. And, um, I'm sure if you're a schizoid, a paranoid schizophrenic, Maybe the name, the skitzes and the polys and the heaves and all that, like maybe that would annoy you if you had like one of these mental issues. But I, I think yeah. it's it's licensed. I guess you know? it's, it couldn't be written today, obviously. Um, no, and 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 um, but I do think um, you know we talked in our episode about you know like hey, uh, what's our diagnosis? Which plan am I going to be in? And um, mm-hmm. we had a lot of fun with that. Um, but, but I think there's something actually kind of radical and a bit progressive about his portrayal, even though he's got this language that might be suspicious, you know, Adolf Phil or whatever for the, who's the, who's an Adolf Phil, the paranoids. Yeah. And, you know, there's yeah. problems here, but the core idea is all of these people with these mental illnesses have a duty, have a role, have a function, have something to contribute to society. Mm-hmm. They're not, they shouldn't, they don't need to be institutionalized. That's part of the point that they can self govern. They have every, every of these groups has something to contribute. This is a good one. If you're, this is a good one. If you're um, trying to explain to someone who's never heard of Philip K. Dick outside of the movies, like if they're like, want to know about, Oh, what's one of his weirdest books <laughs> and yeah. concepts? This is, this is a good one to say, like, so there's this planet, and it's basically a big mental institution, and all these clans are run by the people with these different diagnoses, and, you know, it's their, um, hold on a second, we have one more book to go. So. Where else is in this uh, novel? Oh, the, the, he started, he started thinking the job writing late night comedy sketches, that's, I remember that too. Yeah. Oh, His yeah, job was yeah, writing yeah. Cold but War not, propaganda, but then. Yeah. Yeah, he's writing late night comedy for the CIA. Yeah, <laughs> which is one of the uh, hilarious things about this book. Um, yeah, and I do think Clans of the Alphane Moon is is funny and weird, and so it, it has a place, you know. Um, however, his weirdest book I, um, could be said to be the Three Sigmata of Palmer Eldridge. Um, it's definitely, in um, our opinion, uh, one of his masterpieces. Um, the Three Sigmata Palmer Eldridge was written after Crack in Space and before Penultimate Truth. So um, it's funny to me because I think Three Sigmata is operating on a level that's way above um, either of those books. Well, maybe, I don't know. But... When, when I think of the pantheon of Philip K. Dick novels that are at him at his highest level, I think of ones like Man in the High Castle, Time on a Joint, Hide in the Sky, and, and the Three Stigmata. And I think he 
one of the things about three stigmata is, is that I think it's tightly plotted and all the problems that we've been seeing in some of the other books with stuff being like completely mm-hmm. um, left field is not here. And as weird as the book is, if you understand what it's trying to say, it makes perfect sense and it's very well plotted. Um, but it's a book that you mm-hmm. might have to read a second time. But the first time I read it, I, I liked it, but I wasn't entirely certain everything that was happening. And when I read it for the second time for the podcast, um, then I, it's like Mulholland Drive. The first time I saw Mulholland Drive, I had no idea what was going on. And then the second time I watched it, I felt stupid for having not figured it out the first time. And I kind of had that feeling with Three Stigmata, which actually is a short story fix-up as well. It's a fix-up of the days of Perky Pat, in the sense of just some of the concepts from the days of Perky Pat, kind of, and the, the whole yeah. idea of Perky Pat gets moved over, but it's a very different short story. Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's like with the penultimate truth being a mashup, the, the themes and the what he steals from it are so differently applied here. Like, first of all, it's post-apocalyptic, the Days of Perky Pat. It's not on Mars. They don't use drugs in Days of Perky Pat. I mean, that is more just a, a really, like, horrifying concept, the Days of Perky Pat. That after this war, yeah. the adults, all they can do is play Barbie dolls. That's the only thing they're capable of doing is living in this past. Here, it's a much more communal experience. There's something actually kind of... Mm-hmm. There's a gestalt experience. If you think well, about it, like Black Potty, well, I have a quote which I think here is his best novel, which is all about this gestalt experience and project. And here it's yeah. used it's through this drug experience. And I think it's fascinating what he does in this story. And yeah. Yeah. So I have a quote here from Dick about Perky Pat. He said, In those days in the early 60s, I wrote a great deal, and some of the best stories and novels. Um, emanated from that period. My wife won't let me work in the house, so I rented... Oh, this is about both, I think. So I rented this little shack for $15 a month and walked over to it each morning. This was out in the country, and all I saw in my walk to the shack were a few cows from their pastures and my own flock of sheep who never did anything but trudge along after the bell sheep. I was terribly lonely, shut up by myself in my shack all day. Maybe I missed Barbie who was back at the big house with the children. So perhaps Days of Perky Pat is a wish is a wishful fantasy on my part. I would have loved to see Barbie or Perky Pat or Connie and Companion show up at the door of my shack. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And um Yeah, so, I've heard that story before. Yeah, and he Dick definitely this book was inspired by his hobble. Uh, he wrote in the hovel for a couple years, and, um, <laughs> you know, I think Game Players of Titan, he tells the story about, like, the big angry mechanical god watching him walk to the hovel, <laughs> which, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure it was him just telling a story to, to be funny. But, um, many articles posit that he really believed he was being seen by this mechanical god. I think he was just fucking with people. Um, but, uh, this was nominated by his peers for the Nebula Award for Best Novel in 1964. Mm-hmm. And, um, I have another quote from Dick. This is great. We love this one on our, on our episode. I wasn't able to register my car for 65 and the highway patrol gave me two citations. 
which if I can't pay, as well as registering my card, fixing the muffler, I'm going to be jailed on April 7th. But I can't see borrowing anymore, even though the advance from you, this is a letter to his British publisher for Three Stigmata, even though the advance from you is is down now to 750 What I'm holding out for is the Jonathan Cape money from the UK. Oh, no, this is to the literary agency. Do you think it will be coming soon? I think good news about that would really cheer me up. So he was really down on his luck at this time when when he wrote this book. And um, that's very clear from the, the, the tone of it. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of quotes about his LSD experience. Um, our episode about Three Stigmata, we had uh, J. David Osborne on to the author. He's the author and publisher, and he's... Um, way more knowledgeable about LSD than me since I'm a person that does, I don't do drugs. So, um, he had a lot more to say about the experience of it. But one of the things he definitely, I think Dick has made clear is that he wasn't super into LSD. He only used it a few times according to him. But this is definitely inspired by a bad trip. I mean, this book is the ultimate mm-hmm. bad trip novel. And, so there's all kinds of elements with Mars and with the perky pat and the isolation and the hovel. But in addition to that, it's the, it's the bad trip. Um, and um, I have one other quote I wanted to read from, from Dick and then we can just get into it is uh, he said in my novel, the three stick model of Palmer Eldridge, which is a study of absolute evil. The protagonist after his encounter with Eldridge returns to earth and dictates a memo. This little section appears ahead of the text of the novel. It is the novel, actually. This paragraph, the rest, is sort of a post-mortem, rather. A flashback in which all that came to produce the one-paragraph book is presented. 75,000 words, which I labored many months over, merely explains that it is merely to provide background for that one small statement. Kind of an interesting thing. He's basically saying you don't really, really. It's all about that first paragraph, <laughs> um, and uh, which is a really interesting thing for him to say about three stigmata. Um, but for me, three stigmata is is, is also a horror novel, um, and I think Dick kind of touches on horror from time to time in his oeuvre. But I think three stigmata is every bit as much of a horror novel as it is a science fiction novel. I don't know. What are your yeah, thoughts? I, I, think, I think it's, this is one of the, let me think of some other cases that fit. I mean, there's always terrific things going on, but this one has that almost Lovecraftian kind of cosmic horror. It almost gets to that level. It does. And I think with the two drugs, the choosy, well, once choosy gets involved and, yeah. um, you know, the way choosy affects you is it gets in your mind and it, it controls you and it, it, it changes your perception of reality and everything. And and then once that happens in the book, it's just, you know, it's, um, that's when it gets cosmic and, and crazy. And, um, I think also one thing that's really interesting is because cli-fi has become a term lately that climate change fiction and um, we talked about this in the episode two. Is recently someone said to me, "Well, it's too bad that wouldn't it be you know." And I always said this too: is like, wouldn't it be interesting to see what Philip K. Dick did with climate change? But um, 
but Three Stigmata mm-hmm. is, is is a Kalifi novel. It is about a, a, a fast warming Earth, and yeah. you know people feel like you know they they get drafted to Mars, they have to go to Mars, and then they go. It's harsh there too. So in order to survive, you have to take these drugs, and you're not going to survive if you don't take the drugs. So there's interesting things with the frontier there, um, mm-hmm. but. To me, this is one of Dick's most perfect novels. Um, this is this is his weirdest and most successful science fiction novel to me. But it also works as a horror novel, and um, it's a, it's just a hallucinogenic nightmare from beginning to end. And it's a book that takes multiple readings to fully understand what's going on. And yeah. once you do, it's just it's <clears throat> so good. I agree. Uh, I, I probably read it four times, and. You know, I did the closest, deepest reading when I did my podcast series on it. <laughs> How many episodes was that? I think five. Yeah, I was doing, I was breaking up most of these novels into five at that time. Sometimes I did a one-off, Yeah, five. No, four. Okay. I four on that one. Uh, but, yeah, especially the end, I think it's, it really takes multiple readings to, I mean, it's, you know what, it's, you know, it's, Ubik has this feel that you're in one novel for half of it, and then you're kind of in another novel in the, in the second half, you know, but the second half of Ubik is not nearly as wild and difficult to grasp as this, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, no, and, and I, I think... I like the first half stuff, though. I, I appreciate the first half stuff maybe more than others. I think a lot of people like the wildness, the hallucinogenic qualities the drug trip half of it i i like the the precogs jumping into bed together because they know they're gonna anyways and and i love the use of precognition to predict fashions i i, I mean in the, in the camp in the campbellian sense where you got these superhuman figures who are going to change everything and bring humanity to another level by this point in dick's career he's just saying like these superhumans are going to work for some corporation selling Barbie dolls or, or layouts, right? They're selling layouts for the perky pat or for the candy use. And it's, it just becomes so mundane. Um, but yeah, I think frontier part- stuff. And I love the candy experience. I think I, I'm kind of with, who is it? Is it Bulero who says like candy is a superior experience? I think so because it is the, the gestalt, which I think something, that's something I think Dick is really longing for. Maybe it's been in the hovel. He's kind of maybe kind of lonely in the hovel at this point, so he kind of seeks this gestalt. Well, I think, the mund- a lot about it. I think the mundane parts of the first half are essential because mm. you have to understand the depth for which people are looking for escape in order to take this drug, choose Z, that will you mm-hmm. never escape from. And it's not like... It's not like a drug where you take it once and then you're addicted and you you crave and you desire it. It's it never wears off. It's just you're in. Yeah. Theory. Once theory. you start, and I think one of the things that um, I think Dick was playing with the idea of addiction, and you know, one of the funny things is that you know it's unbelievable to me, and I think Dick was surprised when he heard that people thought that this was a pro drug book. Because it's absolutely not. It's it's a it's an absolute nightmare of mm-hmm. of you know of what a drug can do to you. And so the experience, from my understanding, because I am straight edge, so I don't know, 
is that usually with a lot of times with bad trips that people can feel a loss of time, which, you know, Dick plays with again in, um, with the LSD dart. Yeah. And now in JJ 180 and now wait for last year and the LSD dart in Lies Incorporated. Um, mm-hmm. but specifically in Lies Incorporated or in, um, the Lies Incorporated, the expansion of Unteleported Man, the concept of time being irrelevant. But, um, this is the key for how this demonic figure gets, you know, worms into your mind. So, um, I think, you know, it's interesting that Dick was playing not only with, with addiction to, chemicals but addiction to the concept of god and religion which you know he saw himself as a religious person but at the time and we're really into the whole gnostic thing so i think i think on a certain level three stigmata might be one of his deepest books as far as themes and concepts it's certainly my favorite you know but um i don't know i mean I could go on all day about like the horror aspects of, of three stigmata because as, as somebody who writes science fiction and horror, I really appreciate that, that he, he at no time ever blended those, those two things together quite as well as he did three stigmata. It's just, I think that's one of the reasons why it's so popular. And I will tell you for, I mean, three stigmata, our episode has way more downloads than it does any other episode because I think so many people um love this this novel for for what it for, for what it's done but um three stigmata where do you um place it in in um in the oeuvre because most of us i think it was that it was definitely the one that got the most number one votes on our panel of dickheads so i don't think i put it as number one did i no you didn't but a lot of us did yeah i I mean, I think one reason this is important is the three stigmata themselves. These keep coming back in his, in his career and his writing. You know, he, alienation. What's the other two? I forgot them. Oh, the actual three stigmata. Yeah. They're, 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 they're thematically essential to so many of his work. Um, mm-hmm. I forgot. Well, another thing, what, another thing what too about this book. Should have written it down. I don't want to I can uh, talk if you want to look it up, but um, one of the things I like about this book is that it it is pulpy sci-fi. It is well, it does have parts that are just incredibly well written. Um, it does have parts that are political, mm-hmm. and and it's weird as shit. I think this is this is the most firing of all on all cylinders that because even like some of his higher class books like. Martian Time Slip and Time Out of Joint and Man in the High Castle. Man in the High Castle can come off as a little stuffy and boring for some people. Not for me, but I know, but this one has everything. It's just, it has, it has everything that people could want. Oh, I I see it here. I put it as number two. Yeah. On my voting. Martian Time Slip was one, three stigmata, two. You do love those Marvel fans of Elfay Moon Four, Penultimate Truth Six. So most of these are in my top seven or eight. Yep. Well, Simulacrum yeah, so, Seven. <laughs> so let's wrap up uh, Three Stigmata, and then then we're we're done for tonight. Um, all right. 
But, uh, I mean, overall, I mean, do you think, because um, you obviously, with number two, you obviously think highly of it. But um, I think one of the things that's interesting is that this is the one that I found the most quotes from Dick talking about it. Um, and it's funny because when we like first from the exegesis, did he? Uh, I mean, did he mention it a lot in the exegesis? I believe he does. And in fact, he I have this quote here. He says, "In the beginning of my scene, that I could see the sun, see God at all, and the sun showed that I was not entirely blind, but rather deranged. My 374 experience are an outgrowth of my Palmer Aldridge experience over 10 years earlier." Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that does come from the exogenous, I believe, and then um, so yeah, he was yeah he definitely did talk about it. I mean, he saw it as a as a route towards the Gnostic stuff that became obviously a bigger deal in Ballas. So um, yeah, it's incredibly important. I don't want to shortchange it here. I know we're we're ready to be done, <laughs> ready ready to be done, but you did four episodes on it, and we did. Uh, an over two hour log episode with J. David Osborne. So there's plenty of material out there on three stick Mata. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that, you know, I think the combination of the drugs, the horror elements, the cosmic horror elements, the pulp sci-fi, the frontier and the political commentary makes it just um, a perfect combination of, of PKD at, a, at its strongest. Yeah, I agree. It's one of his best. Yeah. All right, yeah, then. Lots of fun. All right, yeah. But, two uh, hours. You said we weren't going to do two hours. Yeah, yeah we, we, gotta, we weren't going to do two hours. We did two hours. Damn it. Um, all right, so uh, people can find us on, other, uh, on, on our own podcast. And can you tell people more about your podcast now? Uh, my podcast, well, I did uh, Philip K. Dick read-through. It's the, po- or the podcast is... Uh, the main podcast is where I read through Library of America, 100 pages at a time. So that's the name of the podcast. Uh, I'm currently working on uh, Francis Parkman Jr., a uh, U.S. historian. But a couple years ago, I did a complete read through of Philip Dick, including all the stories and novels. I didn't get to the mainstream posthumously published stuff yet. I have to go back and do that. And currently, I'm working on a read through of Lovecraft um, as well. Yes. So if you're interested in Lovecraft or Philip Dick, or just American literature in general, you should come check out my podcast. Well, that's funny because uh, a couple of days ago, whoever was smart enough to get at um, at HP Lovecraft on Twitter, yeah, um, follows dickheads, and it was great to see mm-hmm. that um, our Betsy Woolhive interview got um, liked by HP Lovecraft. <laughs> I, oh. I, I, and uh, I, I liked the idea that H.P. Lovecraft was scrolling through Twitter and was like, oh, yeah, I want to listen to that Betsy Woolhive interview. <laughs> um, he does get mentioned in there. So, um, but I, I, yeah, I really appreciate you doing Lovecraft. I'm going to dive into that here soon um, and really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, no problem. We will get back with you quicker next time to do the next five because we're almost done with those two. Um, all right, but, well, that'll be but, what uh, lies in Zafka and that stuff. Dr. Blood Money, Dr. Blood Money is the next one after this one, and then uh, I don't remember the order, but we'll get there. Um, but we're doing Zafka has drugs too. That's another, another drug book. 
Zap Gun. Crack in Space. Crack in Space, yep. It'll be Doctor Blood Money, Crack in Space, Now Wait for Last Year, and Unteleported Man. I think it will yeah, be. still in this wild period. I love these, this era. These. Yeah, I mean... I don't like the late stuff that much, I, I, to be honest. Yeah, we're definitely in the best period. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, Evan, thank you for joining the Dickheads podcast. Yeah, and thanks for having me. I'll uh, probably uh, see you on SFF Audio again at some point, and uh, it was great talking okay. to you. All right, later, Dickheads. Yeah, thanks, you guys.